God, with our Bibles open, Lord, as we turn to uh, a passage that is oftentimes very confusing for us, uh, Lord, we do believe that every word in the Bible is true. Every verse in the Bible is significant. Every passage is meaningful. Every chapter is relevant. So God, we come to you uh, and we trust you. Lord, in your sovereign plan, you have us here in this passage for a reason. And we do pray that you'd edify us, that you'd build us up using your word by your spirit. Lord, help us to look more and more like Jesus as we walk out of this room. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. One of our nation's greatest revivals uh, took place on the streets of LA. Uh, this took place in 1906, and it lasted several years. Some believe it lasted actually all the way to 1915. Uh, it was the revival called the Azusa Street Revival. And it's not without controversy, but its impact is undeniable. Many attribute this revival to the explosive growth that took place within Pentecostalism throughout our country and throughout our world. It all began uh, with these eight men who were just seeking the Lord together. And they were uh, sitting in chairs together. And then all of a sudden they were knocked out of their chairs and they described it as if a lightning bolt hit them. They got up and they immediately began speaking in tongues and shouting loud praises to God. Over the next several years, the, the revival was basically characterized by these kinds of experiences, uh, these intense worship services, even miracles and healings and, and all kinds of things. But the central main attraction throughout this revival was speaking in tongues. The Los Angeles Times described it this way. It said that this revival uh, was filled with fanatical behavior that worked, uh, who wor they worked themselves into a state of mad excitement and peculiar zeal. The neighborhoods filled with strange howlings from the worshipers who claimed to have the gift of tongues. Now, how do we understand experiences like these? How do we understand even other uh, experiences, other revivals that we know about throughout church history where it seems like the central focus is speaking in tongues? How do we respond to friends who are charismatics or Pentecostals where they claim that speaking in tongues is normative for the believer and even a sign of being truly converted and being spiritually mature? How do you respond if, if your child or a close friend asks you about speaking in tongues and if they should pursue this spiritual gift? Well, maybe the most important question to ask is what does 1 Corinthians 14 have to say about all of these questions? 1 Corinthians 14 has a lot to say about speaking in tongues and about the gift of prophecy. In fact, so much that we're gonna spend three weeks on this chapter, and today we're really only going to look at the first uh, 12 verses. I'm gonna walk through uh, these first 12 verses, and what we're going to find is the one emphasis, in verse one, we're going to see the two contrasts in verses two through five, and then we're going to see the three analogies in verses six through 12. Okay, the one emphasis, two contrasts, and three analogies. Let's jump in. Verse one, we'll look at the, first, uh, the one emphasis. Verse one, Paul says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now, when you read that verse, when you hear that verse, there should be an immediate question that pops into your mind. Why does Paul, 
want the believers here in Corinth to especially pursue the gift of prophecy. Why that gift among the other spiritual gifts and in particular speaking in tongues? Well, the answer to that question is the emphasis of this entire chapter. It is the theme, the main focus. And yet for us to answer it well today, we need to kind of zoom out and understand the larger context of what Paul has been saying. If you remember, uh, chapters 12 through 14 are actually dealing with corporate worship. Uh, chapter 14 in particular do not, um, does not primarily speak into what happens on the streets of LA during a revival period. Chapter 14 does not primarily speak into how you ought to interact with God privately in your relationship with him. But chapters 14 or 12 through 14 are principles that the Apostle Paul gives God's people for when they are gathered together for worship. That's really important. And Paul's big concern here is that the Corinthians had elevated speaking in tongues as the marker for spiritual maturity among the rest. And yet the problem is, is that the Corinthians were speaking in tongues in a way that was not understandable. It was, uh, they were doing so in kind of a, a chaotic fashion that was disrupting their gathered worship. And so what Paul does in addressing this all the way back in chapter 12 is he argued the need for diversity among the spiritual gifts. He's arguing that, hey, speaking in tongues is just one spiritual gift among many. And then chapter 13, of course, the love chapter, he says, it doesn't matter how spiritually mature you are, if you are not loving others well, it really doesn't matter what you are doing. So you get to chapter 14 and, and Paul is putting all of this together. He begins in chapter 14, verse one, with this command to pursue love. Paul is insisting that the aim of their spiritual zeal when they're gathered together is to love one another. And if you remember chapter eight, verse one, Paul really defined love as basically expressing itself in building others up. That the way you love somebody, in short, in summary, is through edification. Okay, that's really important because I think reminding ourselves of the context helps us answer this question, why is Paul elevating prophecy above all of these other gifts? See, if we really are following this command in verse one, to love one another, and if love really is defined by chapter eight, verse one, to build others up, then we will pursue those spiritual gifts that best build others up, which according to Paul is the gift of prophecy. Now, these next couple of verses, he's going to explain why that is the case but this emphasis, I believe, is the key that unlocks this entire chapter. I also wanna say that as Paul elevates the gift of prophecy, he's not saying that this gift is, more, is of more inherent value than the other spiritual gifts. Every spiritual gift comes from the Spirit of God. But what Paul is elevating is communal edification over this sense of an individualistic type of experience when you are gathered for worship. That's the priority here. If you remember at the end of chapter 12, verse 31, Paul commanded the Corinthians, earnestly desire the higher gifts, meaning the gifts that edify others, okay? The other thing I wanna point out about verse one is that this command to pursue love, 
is not random. This is not like a leftover from chapter 13. In fact, this verb here, uh, to pursue, means to strive for, to aspire to. It's in a verb tense that implies this continuous, habitual activity. Paul is essentially telling the Corinthians to keep on pursuing love. Now, why another emphasis on love? Like, come on, Paul, you, you spent all of chapter 13 on love. Why do you keep banging this drum? It's because if you are seeking spiritual gifts without love, that will result in self-exaltation and self-focus. It's almost like if you're pursuing gifts without love, it's like driving a car without oil. You might get a little bit, but it, eventually it's going to break down and it's going to harm your engine. But on the other hand, if you are pursuing love without spiritual gifts, that oftentimes leads to emotionalism. And as we saw in chapter 13, love is an action. Love expresses itself in building others up. So this first verse is absolutely essential because we need both. Like we need this idea of pursuing love and we need to earnestly pursue the spiritual gifts. If you think about verse one, uh, like an equation, it's almost like Paul is saying, take love plus spiritual gifts and that results in edifying other people. And that really is Paul's language throughout this chapter. Seven different times, Paul is exhorting this church to build others up, to edify the church and the believers around them. That is the main emphasis. Now, as we look at verses two through five, Paul explains why this should be the emphasis. And he does, does so by contrasting prophecy and tongues in two different ways. Now, before we unpack the, the, these two contrasts, I wanna zoom out a little bit. I think we need to define some terms, okay? We need to talk about what tongues are and what prophecy is actually referring to. And I know some of you are probably like, finally, you know, here comes the Sunday where we, we talk about prophecy, we talk about tongues. What's, you know, Pastor Chris going to say about this? But I wanna caution us. Um, I am not going to unpack every nuanced view that, is, that has ever existed within church history. Okay, I want us not to miss the forest because we're looking at the trees. Okay, we're not gonna get lost in the weeds here and miss Paul's big idea and the main emphasis. What I'm going to do is I'm gonna give us what we need to understand these gifts so that we can apply what Paul's main exhortation is for this church and for us today, all right? I also wanna say that there are Bible-believing, mature, godly Christians who have differing views on speaking in tongues and the gift of prophecy and how active they are today in the life of a believer, okay? This is not a primary doctrinal issue. And so if you hear some things you disagree with, like we can still be friends and you might be wrong. So <laughs> first, the first thing we need to understand is speaking in tongues and what this means in chapter 14. What I'm going to do is I'm going to explain where we see speaking in tongues throughout the New Testament, and then in particular, what I think Paul means by speaking in tongues in chapter 14, because I don't think that they are the same thing. Okay, I'll unpack that here, but first, let me zoom out again. The Corinthians loved this gift. This was the most popular spiritual gift. This is, this is the gift that they hang their hat on as far as saying, man, we are the spiritually mature Christians. 
but it is filled with controversy throughout church history. A couple different views here. Number one, uh, some people believe that the gift of speaking in tongues has ceased, that it is no longer uh, active in any shape, any way in the life of the church. Some people believe this because we have God's word, the canon is closed, and so we don't need uh, the gift of speaking in tongues, and we also don't need prophecy. We don't need um, the, these other supernatural gifts like healings and, and miracles. Okay, so that's one view, the cessationist view. Then you have the view on the other end of the spectrum. This is where a lot of Pentecostals believe that speaking in tongues is a sign that you have been filled with the Holy Spirit, and thus you are converted. This is basically the sign to demonstrate that you are a Christian, that you have been saved, okay? In all transparency this morning, I don't fall in either camp, okay? I'm probably somewhere in the middle where I'm open, but very, 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 very cautious about these spiritual gifts in particular. My personal view is I think that, that these spiritual gifts are not normative, that these gifts do not occur on a regular basis in the life of a believer, and I also believe that they primarily are exercised in areas of the world in which the gospel, in which the word of God has not been firmly established, okay? So I wanna say that on the front end here, but also say that I believe that God can do whatever he wants to do, okay? I don't wanna limit God within my own theological construct. God can speak however he wants to speak. God can heal uh, whenever he wants to heal. He can do whatever he wants to do. Do I believe that happens on a regular basis in the life of a believer? No, I do not. Okay, so that's my personal view, right? But the other question is, is what does Paul, or what does the New Testament mean when it starts to talk about speaking in tongues? Okay, there are three different ways that we see speaking in tongues throughout the New Testament. Okay, the first way is when the Spirit of God enables the individual to begin speaking fluently in a language that they did not already know. Okay, this is a foreign language, a different language. Okay, we see this in Acts 2, when the Spirit of God ascended on those early believers in the upper room they began speaking fluently in other languages. I'm sure you've heard of missionary stories, missionaries having this kind of experience cross-culturally. Okay, the second kind of speaking in tongues throughout the New Testament is that of a private prayer language. Okay, this is a, an intense, intimate, usually very emotional interaction with God. Uh, some even take Romans 8.26 to be referring to this kind of prayer it says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And some believe that, that what Paul is saying here is that the Spirit of God, as we pray, as we interact with the Lord, we express that prayer in groanings too deep for recognizable words. And I wonder if chapter 14, verse 14 of 1 Corinthians is speaking into that or not. We'll get to that in a second. Now, the third way that tongues is seen throughout the New Testament is this type of ecstatic uh, uh, gibberish, for lack of a better word, that is not recognizable, but it's with other believers, but it also has an interpreter. And so that interpreter is able to discern the meaning there that results in the edification of believers around them. 
Wonder if chapter 14, verse five and verse 27 is getting at that kind of speaking in tongues. Okay, so those are the three options before us as we think about 1 Corinthians 14. Now, some believe that Paul is referring to all three options as we look at chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. I doubt that, uh, and in particular, I doubt that Paul is referring to the Spirit of God enabling someone to speak fluently in a different language. I, I, I hold that position for three reasons. When you look at verse two, the individual who's speaking to God, um, or the individual who's speaking in tongues is addressing God and not other believers. Secondly, verse two, the individual speaking in tongues are, are communicating mysteries in the Spirit. Okay, this is the same idea as chapter 13, verse two, the idea of mysteries here is that it's beyond understanding for the one speaking and for the one hearing. And then thirdly, the one who's being edified here is not the other believers who's speaking in tongues. It's actually the one who's communicating, the one who is speaking in tongues according to verse four. And it appears that this is in some type of prayer uh, according to verse 14. And so for these reasons, I think we can eliminate that first option there and what I think that Paul is most likely referring to in speaking in tongues here in chapter 14 is the private prayer language for some of the Corinthians who, who were basically taking this into the corporate setting, but without an interpreter. And so the result here is, is there's chaos going on as the church is gathered because the people who are speaking in tongues with no interpreter, it's not recognizable. And so it's not edifying. And so it's creating all kinds of tension and all kinds of disorder. And so that's the problem I think that Paul is addressing here within the Corinthian church, okay? Now, uh, let's talk about prophecy for a moment because Paul talks about prophecy in this chapter a lot. Like tongues, there are several different views. One view is that prophecy is when God gives a type of revelation to an individual that is basically on the same level of authority as God's word, okay? So that, that type of prophecy usually has a futuristic element to it, but it's basically without error, all right? The second view is that God is revealing something to an individual, but it's open to error, it's fallible. It needs to be tested, it needs to be weighed, all right? And then the third view is that uh, prophecy, some believe that it's essentially the delivery of a sermon that prophecy and these other gifts are revelatory gifts, and yet we have God's revealed word right here, and it's closed, the canon is closed. And so prophecy is basically the pronouncement of God's word because we do not need other revelations, okay? So the question is, which view best captures what Paul is getting at here in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians? Well, I think right off the bat, we can eliminate view number one, I don't think that prophecy refers to new revelation that's on the same level as the authority of God's word. We have other passages of scripture throughout the New Testament, like Hebrews 1, that says, yes, God revealed himself uh, through prophets, and in that time, it was basically, thus saith the Lord. But now, in these days, God reveals himself through his son, and we know his son through the word of God. So the prophecies are not equivalent to God's word. Furthermore, I think the kind of prophecy that we see in 1 Corinthians 14 is not the same kind of prophecy in the Old Testament. Again, the Old Testament, God was revealing himself through these prophets and it was, thus saith the Lord. 
In fact, a lot of those prophecies became um, scripture, became Old Testament passages. And in addition, you look at verse 29 of our passage in chapter 14, there are instructions here and even in 1 Thessalonians 5 that did not exist in the Old Testament about how to weigh, how to test, how to evaluate different kinds of prophecy, okay? Now, I also am not so sure that prophecy refers to the delivery of a sermon. Okay, I want you to think about this with me for a moment. Paul here is encouraging this whole church to pursue the gift of prophecy, and that includes women. Okay, presumably 50% of this church is women. So why would Paul encourage this church to pursue the gift of prophecy, which if you have this view is essentially the delivery of a sermon when women are not called to preach? That would have been a very confusing and contradictory message by Paul, okay? So if it's not the first view and it's not the third view, what is the gift of prophecy? Well, Leon Morris, he's a New Testament scholar, beautiful commentary in 1 Corinthians. He explains that prophecy denotes something like our preaching, but is not identical to it. It's not the delivery of a careful prepared sermon, but the, the sharing of words prompted by God. Uh, Wayne Grudem defines prophecy as, as sharing something that God has spontaneously brought to mind that results in edifying others, okay? But that's not to say that it's infallible. It's not to say that it's on the same level as the authority of God's word, which I think is why Paul strongly commands us to test and weigh different prophecies according to verse 29 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Okay, so it's not infallible. It's not preaching, I also believe that prophecy is not primarily about predicting the future. This is not about foretelling. I think prophecy is more about forthtelling. I think it's when the Spirit of God prompts an individual to share words that are grounded in the Word of God that results in the building up of the people of God. Okay, I think it's a, it's a leading, it's a prompting, it's a sense by God to share with somebody else, okay? Now, if we could just call a spade a spade this morning, for some of you who are kind of reclining, like, whoa, is our pastor getting charismatic today? Um, if we were just honest for a moment, we, we have experienced something like this, whether the person sharing it or someone receiving it, we just call it something different. We might say something to the effect of, God is leading me to share something with you. Or God has put this on my heart for me to share with you. That is essentially what I think prophecy looks like in the New Testament or in, the, in a New Testament church today. And yes, we need to test this. Yes, we need to weigh it, make sure it doesn't contradict scripture and make sure that the person who's sharing it is not receiving undue attention, okay? Now, I also think that you can use um, multiple spiritual gifts in the same form of edification. I think oftentimes there's a, an intermingling of spiritual gifts that's going on when you're edifying and building up others. Uh, for example, for me, when I'm preaching, I'm using discernment, I'm using wisdom, I'm using the gift of teaching. When you're making a meal for somebody in need, I think you're using the gift of service and you're using the gift of mercy. 
And so maybe for some who are thinking, well, Chris, you're really describing prophecy in a way that sounds like the gift of discernment or the gift of wisdom. But again, I think that you can have multiple gifts being demonstrated, being exercised at once. Now, for me personally, I've had this encounter, uh, this experience. When I was in college, I was, um, uh, I was playing basketball in college and, and, uh, and my parents just went through a really messy divorce. And it was during the summer and my eighth grade coach called me and I, I didn't speak to my eighth grade coach for years. He called me and said, hey, Chris, I heard that you're in, in town. Can you come do a clinic for my eighth grade team and share devotion? I said, absolutely, we'd love to see you, we'd love to catch up. So I go there and I conduct this clinic and then I, I kind of share my testimony, do a little devotion. And afterwards he says, hey, Chris, can we talk? And he pulled me to the side and, and we had this conversation. And he said, Chris, uh, where I come from, where I worship, we, we believe in, in the gift of prophecy, but we don't believe that it's, that it's infallible. And so what I'm about to share with you, God has put on my heart to share with you but I don't, I don't think that it's, 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 uh, it's, it, it can be open to air, basically. I said, oh, okay, this should be good. Um, not sure what he's about to say. And, and he looked at me and he said, the Lord put this on my heart to tell you, to encourage you that you need to fully forgive your dad, that you've been doing this half-heartedly. You've been doing this because maybe you think that you ought because that's what good Christians do, but you need to do it with your whole heart. And my response in that moment, and, and I don't know if, you, if you've ever had somebody who has come up to you and they said, hey, I've, I've got something to tell you. Like your walls usually come up, right? You kind of get defensive, especially if they're like exhorting you or you know, kind of revealing something that you're not doing so well. And for me in this moment, especially as a college age you know, guy who probably struggled with a high level of pride in his life, especially kind of going through Bible classes and uh, you know, the, I know everything kind of stage. My response to that was not kind of putting up walls. It was deep conviction. It was the sense of like being pierced in the heart because he was right. It was almost like God was speaking to me in that moment because I was forgiving my dad half-heartedly. It was something that I wasn't putting my whole heart into as something that I needed to do. Now, was that the gift of prophecy? Was that kind of a message from the Lord to me? Perhaps. And I know even some of you are probably thinking, well, I mean, come on, Chris. Like this guy, he's, he's just doing a logical deduction. You're a college-age student. Your parents went through a divorce. Of course, he's going to encourage you to forgive your dad. And, and my response to that is, sure, that was logical, but I don't think we need to pit logic with the gift of prophecy against one another. I think it can be logical and it can be a sense of speaking something that's been prompted by the Lord to edify somebody else. The gift of prophecy is not all of these kind of crazy stories, kind of predicting the future or, or you know, revealing something that's completely out of the blue. But I think it's this idea of being prompted by the Spirit of God to share something that, that results in the other person being edified, challenged, and encouraged. Love how D.A. Carson talks about this and kind of sums this up. He, he'll apply it to the sermon, but I think it can be applied in, in other ways. He says, one begins to suspect that prophecy may occur more often than is recognized in non-charismatic circles and less often than is recognized in charismatic churches. What preacher has not had the experience after detailed preparation for public ministry of being interrupted 
in the full flow of his delivery with a new thought, fresh and powerful, interrupting him until he makes room for it and incorporates it into his message, only to find after the service that the insertion was the very bit that seemed to touch the most people and meet their needs. I think that's helpful. I do think that this occurs more often than than we think and probably not as often as maybe the charismatic churches would say. All right, now that's prophecy, that's tongues. My fear right now is we have lost the trees or that we lost the forest because we've gotten sucked into the trees, but let's bring back uh, verses two through five. Remember, Paul is contrasting tongues and prophecy, I think, in two main ways. The first way is between when these gifts are being exercised, he's contrasting who is being addressed. The one who's speaking in tongues is addressing God, verse two. The one who's uh, prophesying is addressing other believers, verse three. The second contrast has to do with who's being edified. The one who's speaking in tongues is the one who's being edified. The one who prophesies, the other believers are being edified, according to verse three. Now, why is that significant? Why does Paul provide these two contrasts? Well, look at verse five. Verse five explains he's contrasting this to show that prophecy is the greater gift because the primary concern is edification. And the main issue at play here is intelligibility. Tongues without an interpreter is not understandable, therefore it cannot edify the church. Prophecy, on the other hand, addresses other people, other people's edification, and in that sense is the greater gift. All right? Now, let's look at the third thing here in this passage in verses six through 12, which are these three analogies. Looking at verses six through 12, these three analogies given by Paul are all uh, communicating the same point that he states in verse six. Paul says, now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Okay, Paul's point here is that spiritual gifts are useless unless they are understandable and they result in edifying other believers. Okay, that is the the drum that Paul is banging throughout this chapter. Again, that's the one emphasis. And these three analogies reiterate that point. Look at verse seven. Paul gives the analogy of a lifeless instrument, that of a flute or a harp. His point is, is that how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Paul communicates this in in terms of, it's as if someone is kind of running their fingers over the instrument, but not making any sound. There's no pleasing melody. It's not building others up, it's just noise. And then look at verse eight, the second analogy, the same point, that of the bugle. This was uh, used for kind of a, a type of battle cry. Person would blow into this, it had a distinct sound that was recognizable that basically announced that it's, re- it's time for battle. All right, Paul's point, again, same as the one with the instruments, is that there is no benefit to the listener unless that sound is distinct. Verse nine, it's basically like you're talking into the air. All right, and then look at the third analogy, verses 10 and 11. This is that of a, a different foreign languages. But notice, Paul's point is not that the message being communicated has no value. Of course it has value, of course it has meaning. 
but it has meaning to the one communicating it, not for the one who's listening who cannot understand that language. Or I'm sure we've all been in that situation, whether you've been uh, at a foreign country or you've been at a restaurant or in the elevator, and, and there's a group of people who are speaking in a different language that you can't understand. And you're just kind of standing there. You know they're communicating something of value. You just can't understand it. And so it's of no value to you. That's Paul's point here as far as speaking in tongues when there's no interpreter, it has no value. But then look at verse 12. Paul again redirects their passion and their zeal towards what? Towards building others up. This is the theme here. Edify, edify, edify. Look at verse three. Paul says that prophecy and, and really honestly all spiritual gifts should lead to upbuilding, to encouragement, and to consolation. All right, these words mean to be edified, to be exhorted, and to be comforted. And look, this is our vision, and this is our hope for what you are to experience at Pennington Park Church every single week. What we want you to experience is not for you to be entertained on Sunday mornings. We do not want you to, to be kind of having this, this emotional type experience where you're on this emotional high as you walk out of this room. What we want, and through the spiritual gifts that are being exercised, is for you to be built up, for you to be challenged, and for you to be encouraged, and maybe most importantly, for you to be reminded not to buy into the lie that Sunday mornings is primarily about you. That's a big one. We, we are trained Monday through Saturday to go through life with the lens of being this individualized consumer, right? That, that's usually how we make decisions. That's how we evaluate different experiences. And yet I think the application here today is not to get lost in the weeds of prophecy and tongues. The application for us today is to be reminded that Sunday mornings is not about you, it's about edifying other people. Yes, edifying yourself is a great thing. It's not the point of Sunday mornings. And I fear that many Christians approach Sunday mornings through the lens of what can I get out of this? And it's through this individualized experience of, of how will this just benefit me? And we, we kind of go through these questions. Do I like the sermon? Do I like the songs? Do I like the, the, the volume of the worship? Does the coffee taste how I want it to taste? Is the temperature in the room how I want it? Is the drop-off for children's ministry short enough to my liking? Right, we kind of go through this experience. We don't really say this out loud, but we kind of view it through this individualized consumer as if Sunday mornings is this religious Ikea experience, or we're kind of going through a, a spiritual type target, or we're at some type of, of restaurant. And so this morning, I want to lovingly remind you that while Sunday morning includes you, Sunday morning is not about you. That while you might be indispensable to the body of Christ, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you are not at the center of the body of Christ, neither are your preferences. And so I think that this passage, if we could just zoom out for a moment, is calling us to avoid 
turning Sunday morning into 700 individualistic experiences where it's all about you and God. And yeah, other people are around you. Other people are in the same room as you, but Sunday mornings is primarily about me and the Lord. I think this passage is challenging us to view Sunday morning as a communal experience similar to a family gathering. If you've been part of a family gathering, maybe you do a, a weekly meal together, I guarantee you that you don't love every aspect of that family gathering, right? There might be somebody in the family that annoys you. The, the food may not be to your liking, right? It might be too loud, or maybe people aren't talking enough, or this person annoys you, right? Like that's typical of family gatherings. And honestly, that's very, very typical of a church. Like you probably will not find a church in which you love 100% of that church. If you do, please let me know. Right, And I think part of the reason you might think, oh, well, that's, uh, th that's just very convenient. But no, I think that's true because the things that kind of bump you, the things that kind of maybe annoy you, things that kind of stretch you are there to grow you. Like when you think about it, like what might not bless you on Sunday morning might actually really bless somebody else. Like you may not love a, a particular song but you might be surprised that other people that really minister to them. And I think the call on Sunday morning is to lift your head up and think about the edification of other people, not just about you and your own preferences. And I think the way that we do that is by understanding that every aspect of what we do should be geared towards encouraging and building others up. Every interaction that you have with people, every conversation, the way that you serve, the way that you use your gifts, the way that you pray with other believers on Sunday. Man, one thing I'd love to see more at Pennington Park Church, as you're talking with people, just pray with them. Like, why does that feel so weird? Why does that feel strange? Why don't we see more of that as you're catching up on the week, as you're talking about the weekend, as you're talking about what's coming up this week? Why not pivot and say, can we just pray about that? Can we just bring that to the Lord? It doesn't have to be a 20 minute prayer, just a 30 second prayer to edify and build somebody else up. I'd love to see more of that. Or to think about what we do in this room. This room is not about just this kind of sitting and watching a performance. No, you are called to even edify other people in the way that you worship, the way that you sing, I mean, just to think about the people next to you, you have no idea what the person next to you is going through. You have no idea what type of, of struggle, what type of battle that they are in. And so for you, when you are singing, just as Pastor Tim called us to this morning, for you to sing loudly, for you to declare those truths in your voice, no matter if you can sing well or not, is a way that you can edify the people around you because they may see Pastor Tim and the worship team singing and they may say, well, yeah, of course, he's the pastor. He should be singing out loud. But if they hear you singing loudly, you declaring these truths as if you really believe them, how much more will they be edified and encouraged in your singing? Look, church, there are dozens of ways that I think that we can pivot in our thinking to say, how can I edify others? Dozens of ways. Instead of thinking about, are my needs being met? 
Are, is this really about me and what I want out of Sunday rather than thinking, how can I be of service to other people? Now, the question that I wanna answer, man, way over time, why does this always happen? Um, you guys good? Should I finish? All right, let's go. Okay, I wanna answer the question of why is this so important? Okay, why is there such a, an emphasis on edify, edify, edify. I wanna take us to Ephesians chapter four for a moment because Paul doesn't answer that question in, in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. But Ephesians four, I think, gives us three reasons why we need to be building others up. Okay, he says this. He says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Look, do you see the importance of why when we come together, we should be focused on edifying others? Paul says here that we are to edify others because it helps us to live out the unity that we have created by Jesus, verse 13. It helps us to mature into the likeness of Christ, verse 13. And it protects us from false doctrine, according to verse 14. Edification is not a random command given by the apostle Paul to us today. But this is the way that we help one another experience unity, look more like Jesus, and protect ourselves from worldly ideologies. So look, we build each other up by using our gifts. So your gift, it's not about you. You are not the focus, you are not the point. It's about other people. And so if you sense in your own life that you are experiencing division, you are experiencing a type of being spiritually stagnant, that you are falling prey to maybe worldly ideologies or false doctrine, could it be that you are experiencing those things because you approach Sunday morning through your individual lens and experience rather than edifying those around us? Church, my prayer and my hope is that we be a church that is committed to building up of other people using the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given us for the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. God, we do praise you and we thank you, Lord, so much for this chapter. Lord, in 1 Corinthians 14, Lord, it's confusing at times, but Lord, thank you for the wisdom. Thank you for discernment that you give us by your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be the church, Lord, that, that looks out for the interests of others, that, Lord, you would show us ways that we approach Sunday mornings through maybe a self-focused mindset. God, help us, stretch us, Lord. Help us to live outside of our comfort zones, Lord, for the needs of others. Lord, we thank you for giving us gifts. Help us to use them for your glory and for the good of Jesus. In his name I pray, amen.